The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Good Night Maryland Radio with your host, Nina Bosky. It's been more than 50 years since the tragic death of one of Hollywood's biggest stars at the time and in history, Marilyn Monroe. Nina seeks to uncover the life and death of this legendary star as it coincides with the pre-production of the feature film, Good Night, Marilyn. You'll get a chance to question, explore, and discover the secrets surrounding what really happened that fateful night back in 1962. Let's start the conversation. Here is the host of Good Night, Marilyn Radio, Nina Bosky. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show and Good Night, Maryland Radio as we explore the investigation, the life, and the movie all surrounding Miss M.M. herself. Well, we are in season three. We are dissecting the DA report, and uh, it's, there's a lot of players in Maryland's life uh, or appears to be. Uh, this week, the ambulance theory around Schaefer Ambulance and all those attendants uh, and their story. Are they true? If so, which one is correct? And if an ambulance was called, was Marilyn still alive? And if so, what time was it? Well, based on what we do know, Marilyn died, you can safely say, somewhere between 8 and 10 p.m. Most credible experts will say that, if not earlier. Well, the reason why this show is so important, this one particular is because this is where a lot of the theories and a lot of the convoluted facts uh, get distorted, and it becomes confusing. So um, we're going to try this w- this week on the radio show to name the min- names, tell people who they are, and break it down for you. So then if we can use logic, right, in breaking down this story, especially with this theory, the ambulance theory, then just by the nature of fact, we can can start to uh, dispel fact from fiction, probable theory from outlandish rumor. So that's what we're going to attempt to do today. Um, You know, follow along with us. It's going to be a very interesting show, I I must say. And, um, you know, one of the things that we have to really look at is, you know, was it even really possible to have an ambulance go to Maryland's. And so these are kind of the things that we're going to explore in this week's show, the infamous ambulance theory. So as Goodnight Maryland fans, we're growing around the world each and every week, and we have some shout-outs, and hopefully I can say her name right, Sirk uh, Koo, and she's from Finland. Might not have said that right, but uh, you know who you are. So uh, thanks for joining in from Finland this morning. Susie from the UK, Luca friend from Vancouver, Canada, Claire from St. Paul, Minnesota, Delta from Green, Greens Harbor, Canada, Paul from Missouri, India, Rick from Atlanta, Georgia, Kevin from West Hollywood, California, Patty from Santa Cruz, California, Cecilia from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 
Wayne from Palm Beach, Florida. Jeff from Melbourne, Australia. Iris from Peru. Wow, Peru. Dean from Westchester, New York. And Bill from Chiang Mai, Thailand. Oh, boy, I've, I've been to Thailand. And hello from around the world. Also, I'd like to say a very special happy birthday from one of our panelists. He celebrated a birthday last uh, Sunday, Easter Sunday, Gary Vitaco Robles. We couldn't do the show without you, Gary. So happy, happy birthday. And it's Thank because you, of... Oh, you're welcome. And because of this story and you guys, we are shedding some light on this mystery that's been haunting us for over 53 years. So, you know, as I said earlier, so many people are claiming to be part of Marilyn's life. It's, it really does become confusing to know who all the players are. And as we're finding out, who isn't? Well, this season, we're taking an in-depth look at what was really going on and dissecting the 1982 uh, DA report. We uh, we are also recapping our, our compelling conversation last week about the Red Diary, uh, that wonderful, infamous Red Diary, and did it really ever exist? And I s- highly suggest, if you haven't done it already, go back and listen to last week's show if you have not listened uh, to it yet. Uh, and uh, before we get started, we also have some uh, special people to thank. I have Randall Libera, our executive producer of Goodnight Maryland. Also, like to thank Voice America Radio Networks. They also have uh, a wonderful platform they've launched uh, called Voice America TV. So check it out. We also have Mike Surgit, our engineer, Jennifer, our social media person, and of course the panel. And you, Good Night Maryland fans, uh, because I know you feel a very very passionate about what we're talking about. I, I say this every week, but it's really, really important, especially as we go into uh, not just the radio show investigation, but the real life actuality investigation of Maryland's uh, death, is to go to uh, the goodnightmaryland.com website. Up in the corner is a, a tab called Petition. I'd like you to go onto that page and click and sign the petition. And why is this important? Really and truly, just like Natalie Wood, uh, her uh, corner findings got overturned. It is now, I think it's undetermined, not accidental. I think it's undetermined. And, and, you know, the reality here and what we're coming across is there's so many unknown facts still and so much mystery surrounding Marilyn's uh, death. We don't know for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that she intended to take her life that day. We could say possibly it's accidental. We could say undetermined. But we don't know without a shadow of a doubt that she went into August 4th, 1962, intending to take her life. So with that, let's get started. The panel is back. Gary Vitaka Robles, best-selling author of Icon, The Lifetimes in Films of Marilyn Monroe, and Immortal Marilyn's Mary Jane Gray and Leslie Kasperowitz. And we also have on the line... April Via Via. We are discussing the 641-page DA report. We'll be talking about it. There's a lot of information in the DA report about the ambulance theory and a lot of the ambulance uh, testimony. Lots of good stuff came out of uh, last week's show. And uh, same kind of thing. They talked about the diary, and they did go in-depth in regards to that and did not come up with a lot of information. And we'll recap this, but the Red Diary, I found it very interesting that every time somebody would make a testimony, they'd say, oh, well, we'll we have it and we'll get it to you. And yet it never, ever 
came to light. So anyway, before we get into the the panel discussion of the ambulance theory, we have a couple of questions that were sent in from our uh, listeners, and I'd like to address them. Uh, Davey, who is, uh, I think, uh, asked us a question last week as well. He wants to know that after the divorce to Miller, did Milton Green reach out to Marilyn or did she reach out to Milton? And also, what was his thoughts after Marilyn's death? I know he and his family were a huge support in Marilyn's life and career in the 50s. So are there any facts or thoughts that came from Milton himself? I also have a little tidbit on that one, too. So, uh, Gary, you want to jump in on that one? Well, according to um, Amy Green in Milton's Maryland that was uh, published, I guess, about a decade ago, uh, she recounts that she had a dream about Marilyn in, in early July of 62, shortly before her death, and she believed that Marilyn was in distress, was alone, didn't have anyone to trust her, and that she was sending single signals telepathically to Amy for Milton to respond to her. So he, she suggested to her husband to go to Maryland in L.A. Now, the Greens were about to depart to, to Paris so that Milton could photograph the Paris line. And um, Amy advised him not to take the assignment. So Milton agreed to reach out to Maryland and call her. And uh, Maryland did tell him, according to Amy's version, that she had been thinking about them and that Amy was picking up on her telepathy. Um, she talked about being dissatisfied with her film, but uh, she insisted that, that um, Milton take the assignment and that they agreed to get in contact with each other in August when he returned from Paris. And wow. apparently he spoke to her shortly before he left, uh, and, and she, uh, Marilyn indicated to him that, that she was okay. All right. Does anybody else want to uh, add anything else or we're going to go to question two. Anybody else? Nope, I think we got it. Or no, somebody's going to say something. Oh, no, I, I think that pretty much covers um, it. <laughs> if they did reach out to Marilyn, Marilyn definitely never called them because we have her phone records and her agreement number is not on there. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, Well, let's get to question two. It's Betty from Ashland, Oregon. Uh, She says that actress Diane Ladd recalled Marilyn as almost being psychic or very intuitive. Can the panel tell us if this is is true? Uh, Leslie, you want to jump in on that one? Um, I've never heard any, any stories of Marilyn being psychic, um, but intuitive, I think, is a word that can have a couple of meanings, and I think that Marilyn, being a very um, sensitive and, and emotional person, probably did have a lot of intuition about things and, and gut feelings and that sort of thing, so that could be um, what they're referring to there, but uh, Diane Ladd is not someone who I can say was a close friend of Marilyn's, so it, you know it's hard to say how much she would have really known regarding that, that aspect of Marilyn. Yeah, yeah. So, well, let's let's uh, let's dive in, guys. Uh, we've got uh, the panel is back. We're talking about the ambulance theory. Uh, very interesting uh, theory. We're going to uh, do an overview here. I'm going to start it out by reading. There's a lot in the DA report about this. A telephone call on August 13, 1982, at approximately 9:30 a.m., Assistant District Attorney Ronald Care. Carol received this call from a source who stated that for the purpose of the call, he would be he would use the alias of Rick Stone. So with that panel, let's uh, start out. Uh, Gary, want to give us an overview? 
Well, there's many versions of the ambulance uh, theory. Um, there's essentially six of them. And the first one uh, surrounds James Hall, who um, apparently went by the alias Rick Stone for that phone call. But his uh, 1982 version of events is that he arrived on the scene with a partner in an ambulance and found Marilyn alive, and that while they were resuscitating her and um, she was coming around again, uh, a doctor entered and uh, removed a syringe from a bag and plunged a needle into her chest, following which she expired. And he told this story to the DA, and also he sold it to the Globe tabloid in 1982, and the time frame kind of matches what was believed uh, in the early 80s. Uh, he places himself at her house between 4 and 6 a.m. But then his version changes in 1998 when he talks to Donald Wolf, who published it in the, the last days of Marilyn Monroe. And now um, Donald Wolf's version has James Hall and Norman Jeffries. Norman Jeffries is Eunice Murray's son-in-law, and Mrs. Murray is Marilyn's companion. So the, the version extends, and now uh, Hall has Pat Newcomb present and Peter Lawford present. There's helicopters uh, above. Uh, there's another version by Ken Hunter, and he was an ambulance attendant who spoke to the DA. And in his version, uh, Marilyn was already expired when he and his partner arrived in ambulance, and they observed the body but were sent away by the coroner. There's another version um, told by Walt Schaefer, who owned the Schaefer Ambulance Company, uh, where all of these attendants who made these allegations actually worked. He told uh, Anthony Summers for Goddess in 1985 that his company responded to Marilyn's house and she was alive and transported in coma to Santa Monica Hospital, where she expired. There's yet another version by Schaefer in which she dies en route to the hospital and is taken back to the home. And I think that comes from Robert Slatzer's 1992 version, um, his publication of Maryland Files. The last version that I'm aware of is told by the widow of a Murray Lebowski, who was an ambulance attendant, and she claims after her husband's death that... Um, uh, her husband and James Hall um, were the ambulance attendants who arrived on the scene. And this version comes from Jay Margolis's 2014 book, The Murder of Marilyn Monroe. Wow. So they're very convoluted <laughs> stories uh, bridging from uh, 82 until 2014. All right, so there's a lot of stuff here to dissect. And part of why we're going to dissect this is because I know when I hear these things, then you think, oh my gosh, you know, there's a syringe, there's people screaming, there's an ambulance, you know, there's documentaries, there's all this stuff that's out there. And uh, if there was an ambulance called, when could have the ambulance been called? And let's start to dissect it. One of the things I, I want to read here is that, and, and we'll kind of dissect it by people. We'll start with uh, James Hall because his is the most uh, comprehensive. In the DA report, it says, Stone stated that between approximately 4 a.m. and 6 a.m., uh, that he and an attendant were dispatched by the West uh, Los Angeles P Police Department to Monroe, Monroe's resident. Uh, 
residence, which was located uh, on the street that he refers as the Helena's. Upon their arrival, Stone observed a female standing in front of Monroe's residence, hysterically screaming, she's dead, she's dead, she's dead. I think she's dead. Stone advised the woman he would do his best, what he could do. Stone started, uh, stated that the woman appeared to be a housekeeper or secretary. Stone entered the front door of the residence, took a few steps inside, and then turned and left walk and walked directly into Monroe's bedroom. The bedroom door was open at the time. He observed Monroe lying nude across the bed in a subline position with her he- her head hanging over the edge. He knew her on the floor and be- he threw her on the floor and began closed chest massage. He didn't know if she was dead but was sure that rigor mortis had not been present. So with that said, Mary Jane, what are your thoughts on this? Well, my thoughts are James Hall's account does not align with some of the facts that we know. Um, like when he says when he gives his time, then when he says he was there between 4 and 6 in the morning, and she was still alive at that time, we know that's not factual, because we've, we've kind of parsed apart her time of death, and she was long gone by 4 to 6 in the morning. Um, that also, I mean, if he says 4 to 6 in the morning, we know that the call to police was at 4.30, so how was she still alive when he says he was there? It doesn't line up at all. Um, I, I find it questionable that um, he used an alias when he called police and was attempting to get money out of them and then sold his story to the tabloids, and it just, it all seems very convenient to me. And Leslie, how about you? Uh, yeah, like, like, like Mary Jane says, we, we know that rigor mortis was present. We know that there was lividity um, by that point in the morning, and she had been dead for many, many hours, so it's simply not possible. We also know that there was no indication that a needle was plunged into her heart that would have absolutely shown up on autopsy. You use a fairly large needle for that sort of thing, and it absolutely would have shown up on the autopsy when Noguchi went over her looking for needle marks. All right, I'm going to hear uh, April and Gary's comments as well. And we're, I forgot we were supposed to recap last week's show. So we'll do that all after the break. You're listening to Goodnight Maryland Radio. I'm Nina Bosky, And we'll be back right after this as we talk about the ambulance theory. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 
888-346-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Goodnight Maryland Radio. Help us explore the mystery that is and was Marilyn Monroe. Call into our program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to MarylandLiveTalk at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to uh, Goodnight uh, Maryland Radio. With me is Gary Vitaco Robles, best-selling author of Icon the Lifetimes and Films of Marilyn Monroe, Immortal Marilyn's Mary Jane Gray, and Leslie Kasperowitz, and our very own April Via Via is here joining with us. Uh, but before we get into more of the ambulance theory, I just want to recap last week's show because with these theories, it's just really important for us to get real clear if you're listening to this of what's really true, what's a theory, and really what is an outlandish rumor. So, Leslie, uh, will you do a little uh, quick uh, recap for us? Yeah, well, last week we talked about the Red Diary, um, which has been used kind of as a motive for murder. Um, it's a diary in which Marilyn allegedly wrote down secrets that she had been told during her time with the Kennedy brothers about all all kinds of things from the CIA to Fidel Castro to Jimmy Hoffa. Um, and the bottom line with the diary is that nobody can actually place it anywhere at the scene. Um, and all of the people who claim to have seen it are people who are really, you know, disreputable sources. Um, Robert Slatzer kind of originated it um, and claims that Marilyn started writing it to keep track of what she knew and what she had been told so that she could relay it back to him. Um, and then the other people who claim to have seen it are Ted Jordan, uh, who later changed his story and stated that what he actually had was a book of poetry, and Lionel Grandison, who claims that it was brought with Marilyn's body to the coroner's office and claims to have seen it there. Um, and there's just simply no evidence to back up any of those stories or the existence of the diary. And um, at the end, the DA report kind of concluded, you know, what I think it was Gary brought up last week, which is that if this book is the reason that Marilyn was to be murdered, why would the people who have come in to commit this crime have left it on the scene to be found by the coroner's office? Um, so that's kind of where the DA landed on it, and I think that most of the panel agrees that it simply never existed. Well, and also, let me just say this. Okay, we all can agree the fact is, what in the world were all these people, we all now know that Marilyn died, and they know that Marilyn died earlier um, than 4.30 or 3.30 in the morning, right? So if they all knew prior to midnight, right, then the question is, what in the world were they doing? So I think we can agree on that, but the, the, the reality is, is there has, if they were there for that long, I'm sure if there was a red diary just sitting around and they were covering up something, that, to your point, it would be gone. I mean, I just it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, given the fact that, uh, you know, there was other stuff of Marilyn's that were actually very personal. And, and who would ever have time to be able to dissect what, what really needs to be gone and what doesn't in terms of, you know, more specific and personal stuff, especially if it wasn't planned. So uh, it's interesting stuff, this this Red Diary. So I just want to point out, Robert Slatzer, 
Lyle Grandison, and you have uh, Ted Jordanson. Um, those three people are the ones that were uh, perpetuating the Red Diary and expanding it out there in the media. We now know that Robert Slatzer did not have a in-depth relationship an up-close personal relationship with Marilyn Monroe. We also know that Lionel Grandison was fired and let go from the coroner's office, what, a week later from from Marilyn's death? He was not somebody that was privy to uh, confidential information with the exception of the fact that he signed the the, um, autopsy report. And so from that perspective, that's what he did. He, he had a specific duty. Uh, then you also have Ted Jordanson that we talked about in the, in, the, in the DA report. It goes in length about the fact that he comes clean and even says, no, I think it might have been just a book of poems. So, guys, when we start dissecting, you know, some of the stuff that's out there floating, it's so easy. I do it too. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe that's the truth. And we've really got a question, especially 53 years later with all this information uh, flying out there. So with a lot of information is, of course, the ambulance theory that to me is one of the most convoluted ones um, because there's different players saying different things and it's really hard to know who's who and what's what. So uh, April, let's Let's hear from you. What are your thoughts in regards to um, the ambulance theory? Well, my main focus has usually been Hall, but um, Hall originally said in Goddess that he arrived at 3 in the morning, and then as the panel pointed out, he later changed it to say sometime between 4 and 6. Um, a main issue with that is that the press arrived at her house in between the 4 and 6 timeline and were taking pictures, and there are absolutely no pictures of an ambulance or Hall there. And let me just let me just read a little bit more from the DA report. The man advised Stone to put an airway into Monroe's throat and apply positive pressure. The man then began to close chest heart massage while Stone began mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Stone stated um, that Marilyn started to purge at that point. He stopped and told the man that, uh, you know, basically to switch procedures. The man stated, wait a minute, and withdrew a loaded syringe from his bag. The man then counted down several ribs, injected the needle into the area of Monroe's heart. Guys, this is where we get the story. I can't tell you how many people say, you know what? I heard something about her having a needle into her heart, right? So this is where it comes from. The discharge that discharged the contents of the syringe. The man resumed closed heart massage for several minutes and then stated, I've got to put on a show. The man stated he was pronouncing her dead and that Stone and his partner could leave. Stone and his partner left the residence at that time. He said that also they'd been there almost uh, 15 minutes. He also stated that he departed the residence. It was just the big, it was just beginning to become daylight, which again, you know, four to six, he says in the DA report, um, you kind of know if the sun is coming up. I don't know, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, if you're changing your story, which is what he did after the facts. So just remember that. Stone stated that he can prove he was the ambulance driver at the time of Monroe's death. He doesn't recall the intendant who accompanied him, uh, but he was able to name the following ambulance employees who worked with him. Lucky the manager, Joe Tarno or Taronsky, the dispatcher, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, Merrill and Tom Fears. Gary, want to add on to this conversation? Well, I, I think Hall's story shows his very cursory understanding of the facts of the case. 
And, you know, if he only looked at the death certificate, which has been published many times over the years, Marilyn is pronounced dead, I think, around 420 by Dr. Engelberg. So if that's all the information that he knows, he puts himself on the scene right before that time. But, but his, his, his claim doesn't take into effect the other facts of the case, which is what the other panel members have, have disclosed, that there was already fixed lividity and rigor mortis present. And so that places her death almost eight hours uh, before. Um, and in, in addition to the autopsy report not uh, validating any of his claims, which included trauma to the chest, the heart muscle, and I think at one point he uh, alleges that a rib was broken uh, during the chest compressions. And you know, none of that was found in the autopsy report. Why do you think, I'll start with you, Leslie, why do you think uh, um, he, you know, 1982, he's now telling this story? Why do you think that uh, he would tell a story like this? Uh, well, the simple answer there is dollar signs. We um, we know that he asked for money from the DA when he initially came to them with his story, and that he later sold his story to Globe for a reported forty thousand dollars. So that's a pretty big payday to tell a story that you made up. <laughs> um, so he he claims that he was afraid for his life, and yet in no version of his story does he state that he saw the Kennedys there or had any knowledge. Um, of the Kennedy's involvement in her death. So that doesn't really add up to why he would be afraid for his life. He he hadn't witnessed anything involving the Kennedys, and they would have been the only people powerful enough to make him fearful for his life. So uh, according to the DA report, Stone stated he was willing to cooperate, but the economy had flattened out for him and that this type of information you're going to have to pay, he stated, with uh, that he would take a polygraph examination and that upon determination of his truthfulness, he would demand immediate payment. He estimated his travel expenses about a couple of thousands. Stone was advised that travel expense could be arranged, but that payment for the information would be determined after the information information was reviewed by the district attorney staff. Stone agreed but insisted on expense money and his selection of a meeting place. So, uh, April, your thoughts on, uh, you know a lot about Hall. What's your thoughts on him? Um, if you have information that can crack like a cold case and everything, I don't think that you're going to sit there and just think about money. And Hall had over, well, nearly 20 years to come out before that never said anything, and then once he realized he could make money off of it, that's when he decided to come out. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's a pretty uh, intense uh, kind of accusation in terms of what he saw and what he did, and he seems to be a very uh, prominent part in terms of Marilyn uh, dying. Uh, you know, Mary Jane, what are your thoughts in regards to this as well in terms of your research that you've done on Hall? Um, I... I believe the reason that James Hall came out with his story when he did, um, I, I agree with Leslie, it's because he saw dollar signs. The 1982 investigation was all in the news. But also, he makes serious accusations against Dr. Greenson, and Dr. Greenson had passed away in 1979. So prior to that, Hall couldn't have said anything because he was essentially committing slander and could have been held legally accountable for that. In 1982, November 23rd, an issue of the Globe uh, article reported that James Hall, an ambulance attendant, witnessed the murder of Marilyn Monroe. The story had been previously conveyed to the district attorney's office by a man believed to be Hall. 
Uh, a private investigator, Milo Spirigulo, uh, provided the DA's attorney's office with an identity of Hall's ambulance partner, Ken Hunter. Hunter stated that he was employed by the Schaefer Ambulance Service in the early 1960s. He recalled being dispatched with uh, another attendant whose name he can't recall to Marilyn Monroe's house. The house was located, obviously, in West L.A. near Sunset Boulevard. Uh, And then we'll go into that a little bit more in terms of what he says. So, So, you know, April, could you do us a favor? Can you highlight for us who are the ambulance attendant drivers in in question so hall that night was with who who was his partner um, who was he saying well hall things tend to change um i know that there was an old interview where um i know it's been brought up but he said he couldn't remember the name of his attendant um there's another one where um he i've heard that he was sent out alone i don't actually think that came from him but that one does go out there too and um, it's really, most of the attendants, and I believe Gary brought this up earlier, they all worked for Schaefer Ambulance Company. Yes. So it really yes. just changes the name of whoever was on the Schaefer Ambulance um, roster at that point. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting in terms of all of this. Gary, what are your thoughts on this? Um. Uh, well, I, I think Hall was a desperate man. Um, I mean, in, in his, there, he's quoted in the DA report as saying that his family was starving to death. So that seems to be his motivation. Um, Ken Hunter does recognize his picture that he did work for the, for the company, um, and that might be true. Um, but I, I, I think we have just a man who's, who's desperate to get on the, the bandwagon during a time in history where the story was hot and the tabloid media was willing to pay. Yeah, I think that uh, you know this is a this is an interesting point because uh, you know this has certainly been the one that's been circulating uh, quite a bit over the years. Uh, Leslie, what are some of your thoughts on this too? Um, well, as we've already covered, it was it was a very hot story at the time, and um, I think that over the years you see it change. Uh, he's changing the time as more details are emerging, and he starts to realize that his story doesn't fit. He later, um, in 1998, in Donald Wolf's book, uh, tells a different version of the story in which Marilyn is found in the guest house. Um, and at this point, he pushes his timeline back quite a bit, and now he's got his um, his timeline more towards 10:30 or 11 o'clock at night, where he claims they've arrived and Marilyn is in the guest house, and this is where the resuscitation takes place in this version of the story. Um, and he then states that after Greenson comes in and, and plunges the needle into um, Marilyn's heart, that they they leave. This version of the story is corroborated by Norman Jeffries, who was mentioned a little bit earlier by Gary, I believe, who is Eunice Murray's son-in-law. And this is the first time that Norman Jeffries' presence at the scene is ever brought up. Um, and so the story just gets even more convoluted, where you now you've got another alleged witness to this you know, event. Um, and in this version, um, Dr. Engelberg arrives before midnight, and they all move Marilyn's body back into her bedroom and set up the suicide scene. So you can kind of see over time where Hall starts to realize that his story isn't fitting the facts, and he starts to change it to try and make it fit the facts a little bit better. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the key here because there's so much that is, uh, you know, that is, uh, you know, uh, completely just. Uh, it's not based in any kind of theory. It's 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 the sensationalism that we get caught into, and you know, it certainly has caught my uh, attention over the years, and I started paying attention to it because on some level it does make sense that an ambulance would be called. So I guess my question, and I'll ask you, Gary is uh, was an ambulance called and could an ambulance could have come to Marilyn's house, but they didn't witness any of the things that we just talked about? Well, that seems to be um, a scenario that's more based in fact. And when I was researching ICON, I know I ran across newspaper articles from August 6th of 62. I, for the life of me, I, I can't source it at this point. I think it's the Los Angeles Times because it's certainly not in the New York Times and I think it might also come from Mrs. Murray's memoir. But apparently there was um, an ambulance and a fire rescue truck that arrived uh, right around the time or directly after the police arrived. And that seems to fit with Ken Hunter's story. And that might have been um, protocol when the police went out on an apparent overdose. You know, the call came through that she was already dead, but... um, you know, whoever's taking that call might have to call um, emergency services because uh, that might not have been a correct call on her death. So I think that fits with what we now know about emergency services. Interesting. So let's read a little bit more of the DA report in terms of Ken Hunter's uh, uh, statement. He says his partner entered the residence while Hunter obtained the gurney from the ambulance. Hunter believes a police unit arrived simultaneously with their arrival. Hunter entered the residence approximately two minutes after his partner. He proceeded to the bedroom where he observed Monroe lying on the bed being examined for her life signs by his partner. She was nude and lying possibly on her side. Hunter noted that uh, there was lividity on the area of her throat. The partner did not remove her from the bed. He told Hunter she was dead and possibly uh, had started rigor mortis and it was present. Hunter stated that he observed several people present in Monroe's residence. He observed the police officer, an older man dressed in a suit, an older woman, and several other people. Hunter and his partner were present at Monroe's residence between 10 and 15 minutes. Upon determining she was dead, they left the residence. Hunter is familiar with the name James Hall, but cannot recall in that regard. Hunter related essentially the same facts as he reported during a previous interview. He stated with reasonable certainty that his partner was Murray... Leibowitz. He described Leibowitz at the time as approximately 30 years old, a Caucasian and heavy set. Investigator displayed a photograph of James Hall to Hunter. The photograph was contained by the Globe. Um, he examined the photograph and said that he was definitely not his partner. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from the panel their thoughts on what was just stated. We'll continue the conversation on the ambulance theory. I'm Nina Bosky, and you're listening to Goodnight Marilyn Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Night Maryland Radio. Help us explore the mystery that is and was Marilyn Monroe. Call into our program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to MarilynLiveTalk at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Good Night Maryland Radio. I'm Nina Bosky. This week, the panel is discussing the ambulance theory, what is true, what isn't, who are the players, so we can really start to dissect, and what starts to make logical sense. So when you're hearing this stuff, I, I don't want you to go into the sensationalism, because it's all fun to have you know a mystery and a thriller and, oh my gosh, the ultimate whodunit, okay? We'll leave that to uh, uh, Good Night Maryland, uh, the, the movie. But this is real life here, and this is a real person that actually had um, a a mysterious death here. And we have to take it seriously in the sense that, um, you know, to take a step back from your own kind of, uh, you know, uh, the ultimate wanting to know what happened from a sensational uh, standpoint, but really looking at it from just logic, what makes sense and what doesn't. And this uh, kind of connects to this week's Life Bites It is Truth or Illusion. In an interview with Joan Greenson uh, that she did for an MM documentary, she said that more people over the years when asked about Marilyn never really asked about the real person. They wanted to know the illusion. Well, as we embark on the real-life investigation further... Uh, And as you know, we live in a very quick fix society, wanting and expanding on more sensationalism sometimes than wanting to know the truth. We have to ask ourselves, if we found out the truth, would we really want it? Or is it more appealing and better drama to keep the mystery going? Now what I'd like you to do is take this same story and apply it to your own life. Are you creating drama? Staying in the illusion, or you getting to the truth of the matter? Illusion or truth? You decide. 
All right. Well, we are recapping uh, what exactly this, uh, what I had said uh, in last uh, segment about the ambulance theory and Ken Hunter and his version. Uh, Leslie or Mary Jane, you want to jump in? Hello? Anybody there? Did we lose everybody? Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we had said um, before the break that uh, yet another version of the ambulance story is that she was picked up alive and driven to Santa Monica Hospital and that she had died in the, um, in the ambulance en route and was returned back to her house. Um, this version of events came about in 1985 in a documentary called Say Goodbye to the President, and it was said by Walt Schaefer, who was the owner of the ambulance company. Um, he was not actually present that night and doesn't have any first-hand knowledge, but he gave a very convincing story that um, they had picked her up and brought her to the hospital. Yeah, and, and his story really changes over, I mean, he, he goes back and forth, um, and that that's what also becomes the challenge, and I think in Jay Margolis's book, or somewhere I had read it, uh, and the reason why he changed his story is because, quote, it's Hollywood, and, you know, at that time, I mean, I do have to say, you know, they, they had a lot of verbal contracts, and they did, uh, they did uh, you know, do a lot of celebrity uh, and high-profile people where they would have to keep things hush-hush, and so so if he did say something um, at that time, I could, you know, that starts to make sense. The challenge that doesn't make sense is that why in the world can't we get straight who worked with who? I just find that very, I mean, to me, that just seems simple logic. You know, I may not remember 20 years ago, but I do remember who my coworkers were. April, what do you have to say about that? Um, I was going to say that um, Murray Leibowitz, denies even working that night. He says he was not on duty on the night Marilyn died. And Ken Hunter uh, places him as being his partner, but Murray um, always said that he wasn't even working that night, and there's no way that he was Ken's partner. Well, it's, you know, then this is why it gets confusing with these books and stuff as well, because Mrs. Leibowitz uh, uh, says in the Murder of Marilyn Monroe case closed J. Margolis's book that uh, over the course of a comprehensive interview, even through her, uh, she disputes that Hall, she disputes Hall's account. Her husband did relay how Hall was in fact Murray's partner on the night of August fourth, nineteen sixty-two. So, do you know what I'm saying? Who's lying and who's telling the truth? That becomes the challenge, Mary Jane. Well, something else to take into account with all these ambulance theories and stories is if you go back through the newspaper archives of Marilyn's death, there's no account of an ambulance being called. And I find it a little hard to believe that back then when the press was hungry for every detail that they wouldn't have interviewed the ambulance company then. None of this came out until James Hall in 1982. Well, as far as who worked with who, it gets really confusing because this one says he worked with this one and then this one denies that he did. We have no idea who was on duty that night. Yeah, and that, they, all, that, they all contradict one another. And, and whoever makes a claim to have gone to her house and found her alive, you know, would, the story would have to be corroborated by the partner because ambulances, are, there are two attendants. So whoever makes a claim um, would, would automatically have someone else on hand to either support that claim or, if it's fabricated, um, completely deny it. And, you know, that might be the, the crux of why it's so difficult 
to determine who the ambulance attendants were. Well, because and then not everybody you, is in congruence with their version of the story. Well, and then it gets even more complicated because um, uh, Hall claims that Leibowitz was uh, was actually paid off, and that Leibowitz um, was paid off by the Kennedys, and he bought all these car washes. So, do, do you understand? I mean, it gets it gets even more and more deeper, and it gets very very convoluted. So, I definitely think that when we get to the conference, guys, we're going to have to really point this out of what we know to be fact, what we know to be a potential theory and what is really at this point just rumor and so a lot of times people when they're writing these books now the good thing is is I at least I can speak for Anthony Summers is that he has the raw tapes of of you know those actual interviews so there's no hearsay you really get to see and hear not see but hear what the person said coming out of their mouth not something that somebody's then rewriting their version of what they they thought that person said that's one of the reasons why and I'm sure you guys feel the same way is it's very interesting reading the DA report or the transcripts uh, in uh, from the DA report in terms of what was said. They, they try to stay very factual. As you can see, when we're reading the DA report, there isn't a lot of, um, well, I think he meant this. It's, what did he say? This is how he said it, and this is what transpired. Uh, Leslie, your thoughts on this? Uh, well, you talk about facts, and that's the bottom line with this situation is that there. I have never seen any hard evidence to place an ambulance at Maryland's house at any point um, during the night of August 4th or the morning of August 5th. And that's kind of what it all comes down to is you've got all these people telling these stories, but none of them are producing any hard evidence to back it up. I've never seen an ambulance log stating that they were there. Um, you know, if she was taken to the hospital, there would absolutely have been records at the hospital. I mean, at that point, you're talking about a cover-up of monumental proportions, where if people are being paid off, you'd have to be paying off an entire staff at, at a hospital. You know, it just, there's, you, you come back to the facts. What can we corroborate actually happened? And the bottom line is none of the ambulance stories can be corroborated by facts. Patrick Obly interviewed regarding possible ambulance dispatch to victims' residents. Obly recalled dispatch, but attendants turned away prior to entering residence. Uh, and so, you know, that was investigator uh, telephoned and interviewed. Is it Carl Bellazzoni? Is it, am I, uh, who is this guy? Who is oh, he? He was Do- the um, vice president of California Ambulance Service, and they had merged with Schaefer Ambulance. So he says that Tom Fears is currently an ambulance driver for the L.A. Fire Department. Lucky Obly was a security guard at NBC. Uh, and Joe Tarnoski is employed as an usher at the Forum in Inglewood. Who and how do these people relate to the ambulance story that day? Do they collaborate on any of the, um, of the information from Hall, uh, Leibowitz, or Hunter? I'm not aware that they were interviewed by the DA. I don't remember seeing any evidence of them being sought out. Yeah, just the uh, Abli. Uh, he said that they were dispatched but turned away. He also says that during 1962, he was employed as a supervisor by the ambulance uh, service. Um, and he, the investigator played a tape recording of Rick Stone's voice, and he stated that Stone's voice is not familiar to him. Um, now, in 
Margolis's book, he goes on to say that I guess he um, he found a record in a court document that actually showed that he was employed um, by the ambulance service because initially the ambulance service did not uh, acknowledge him as being an employee. Does anybody know anything about that? April? I actually don't. Um, maybe <laughs> someone else does. <laughs> Anybody know that one? Uh, because, no. you know, they, the, the question is, is, you know, part of the thing is they're trying to answer these theories and what could have happened. And, uh, you know, maybe the next uh, in our next show, um, not next week, but the week after, we can get some of those quotes and we can really uh, dissect in terms of recapping this show because it does get convoluted. We have Hall, we have Hunter, we have Leibowitz and Hunter saying that Leibowitz was his partner and Hall saying that Leibowitz was his partner. And, uh, you know, Leslie, I liked what you said uh, earlier in terms of um, what could be true and what couldn't be true. Your thoughts on that? Uh, Well, I think that of all of the ambulance stories, the only one that I find to be uh, possible is the version in which, is Ken Hunter's version in which an ambulance arrives. Marilyn is already deceased, obviously deceased. Um, he describes her body uh, accurately, um, but it's you know it's impo- it's possible that it, you know he received a description elsewhere. But to me, that's the only story that fits because we know that there's no way an ambulance arrived while she was still alive and attempted to resuscitate her. Um, certainly not during the early hours of the morning. And so, to me, that's the only story that I would consider as as plausible. And uh, Gary, how about you? Well, in an audio tape, which we can find on YouTube, Ken Hunter is briefed on Hall's allegations, and his response dismissing that is an expletive that's, that's bleeped. And, and again, I'd have to agree that his version seems to be the most accurate because it, Walt Schaefer says that Maryland's estate was built for transporting her to Santa Monica Hospital, but we do have the... Um, creditors list on Maryland's estate available, and uh, Schaefer Ambulance Company is not listed as a creditor. So it would suggest that if an ambulance did arrive and it was it arrived too late, it certainly wouldn't have charged the estate. Well, and that seems also, um, it might have been Leslie that said this as well, is that that's also why um, you know, the, the police never uh, interviewed them, is that they were turned away and they weren't really part of it. They were just turned away. Uh, Mary Jane, your thoughts? Um, yeah, I just wanted to uh, expand a little bit on something you had mentioned briefly, is that uh, James Hall had made accusations that Leibowitz had been paid off to keep quiet. Um, he doesn't seem to realize that making that statement kind of contradicts his own because he was so broke and he was shopping around tabloids. Why wasn't he paid off as well? If there was something to be covered up and people were paid off, where was his payout? Very good point. Very good point. April, your thoughts about this as we close this week's show? Um, I was just going to say that I think when you look at these people, you could see a lot of them jumped in at the hype of like Monroe mania in the early 80s when everyone was getting paid, and that's when they released their groundbreaking stories that they had 20 years to talk about. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, in, you know, in terms of the timing and why this wasn't talk- talked about uh, prior to 1982, 
You know, uh, people will say, oh, my life was threatened. And that certainly became a buzz uh, buzz and a concern for people, whether it was uh, perceived real and it was a real threat or not. Uh, the reality is, is that uh, nobody was talking prior to 1982. So let's uh, let's we're going to close this week's show. I've got some exciting news Next week, we will have airing Dr. Cyril Weck will be with us and we'll be talking about the forensic pathology and, uh, you know, commenting and uh, dissecting a little bit further her um, his interview that he did with Mary Jane Gray a while back. And we'll start to lay the groundwork for the forensic pathology, which is something that you can't distort. So on that note, uh, we will also recap, not next week, but the week after, the ambulance theory. And we'll uh, we'll talk a little bit more if there's anything specific that we have to get that we haven't covered in this week's show. But one of the things that you're learning right now is that Hall isn't credible. Ken Hunter might have been credible. But the reality is, is that there is in no logs of the Maryland estate that an ambulance was ever called. And don't you think that Walt Schaefer would have would have built the estate for the fact that if he did indeed, his company did come and uh, take care of Maryland, I'm sure he would have built them. On that note, it's a wrap for this week's show. I'm Nina Bosky. And remember, never stop dreaming. Thank you for joining us for today's show. Good Night Maryland Radio with Nina Bosky can be heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be sure to tune in again next week. (laughs) 